Welcome to the 2023 New Zealand International Science Festival. My name is Judith and I'm a member of the festival board. Our vision for the festival is to create an event that inspires and engages the community with science. Science impacts all of our lives in so many different ways and is a source of so many opportunities to enhance the way we live. And today's talk is an ideal example of that. So today we have some local heroes, actually international heroes, and particularly heroes of mine because I am also a microbiologist. As we make a start, we will introduce our speakers for today and they will each present their presentation. We'll have time for question and answers at the end of, of the talk. So our speakers today. I'd like to introduce uh, Juliet Alvey. Dr. Juliet Alvey is a clinical microbiologist based at the Southern Community Laboratories, which is now known as Awanui Labs, and this is in the Dunedin Hospital. Juliet also works as a clinical microbiologist for the Institute of Environmental Science and Research Antibiotic Reference Laboratory in Wellington. She's also the chair of the New Zealand Microbiology Network. Her interests include antimicrobial resistance, diagnostic stewardship, and antimicrobial susceptibility testing. Kira Juliet. So Saki Balevanua Lala is a PhD student from the University of Otago, researching under the mentorship of Professor James Usher in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Their research is centred on the critical issue of antimicrobial resistance, focusing on trying to find transmission pathways of antimicrobial resistance pathogens. Originating from Fiji, Saki brings personal experience and insight into their study, having witnessed the increasing threat of antimicrobial resistance within, their home within his home country. And today, Saki will be presenting some significant findings from the research. And this is a collaborative effort involving teams from Samoa, New Zealand and Australia. And the work provides a broader understanding of the antimicrobial resistance threat across the Pacific region. Third speaker today is Professor Greg Cook. And the Cook Laboratory is a multidisciplinary group focused on both human biomedical and agri-tech research. And for the talk today, Greg will focus on research from his group aimed at preserving human, animal and plant health in the face of antimicrobial resistance through the discovery of uh, and implementation of compounds that are used exclusively in animals and plants to combat environmental pathogens like mastitis-causing bacteria and fungal pathogens of plants. So you see we have a broad diversity of knowledge for today's talk, so I'm sure we'll all be entertained and, and educated. And I welcome Juliet to start our discussion. So, um, kind of introduction, I'm Juliet, I'm a clinical microbiologist um, uh, based at the um, Diagnostic Laboratory in Dunedin Hospital, which was known as Southern Community Labs, you probably all know SCL, we've actually changed name recently to Awanui, um, but I also have a role at the ESR based up in Wellington at the Antibiotic Reference Laboratory, 
and also currently the chair of the New Zealand Microbiology Network, which is a group of clinical microbiologists across New Zealand, diagnostic labs, with public health colleagues and also the Ministry of Health to really discuss and um, take action against the infectious disease threats we face in New Zealand. So my talk is really a very high-level, um, just a broad introduction to the topic of antimicrobial resistance. What is it? Why is it, why is it important? How can we detect it? And how can we prevent it? I'm not, not an academic. I'm a, a clinical microbiologist, so that means I trained as a doctor and then specialised in microbiology, which is one of the pathology disciplines. And so my role within the laboratory, the diagnostic setting, is really making sure that the laboratory is providing the services we need for our community, diagnostic work, and also providing advice and guidance to clinicians on how to treat infectious diseases. Sorry, my slides look like they've become a little bit muddled up with some of the formatting, so apologies for that. So what do we mean by antimicrobials? So we all know the term antibiotics. We've all probably, in our lives, taken an antibiotic at one time or other. Antimicrobial is really a, 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 um, a term which includes not just antibiotics which treat bacterial infections, but also antivirals, so drugs that can treat viral infections, antiparasitics which treat parasites, and antifungals which treat fungal infections. So that's really the broad term is what we mean by antimicrobials. But for the purposes of this talk, I'll be mainly talking about antibiotics, which treat bacterial infections. But clearly, antimicrobial resistance does, in fact, impact on viruses, fungi, and parasites as well. So antimicrobials, or antibiotics, how do they work? Well, we know that the bacterial cell is much more simple than a human. So a, a given antibiotic will target a particular function within that bacterial cell. It might be that it focuses on the cell wall synthesis, so it may interrupt actually you know, creating a cell wall. It may interrupt with protein synthesis, so it can no longer make the proteins it needs for that bacterial cell function, or it could be that it interrupts either nucleus nucleic acid synthesis or some metabolite within the cell wall. So that's how antimicrobials function, to target the bacteria that we want to kill whilst preserving human cells, because what we don't want is a drug that will also impact on human cells uh, and make us sick from the drug itself. Who's this guy? That's right. Sir Alexander Fleming, you know, the godfather of antimicrobials, a Scottish physician and bacteriologist back in the 1920s who chanced upon the discovery of penicillin, really because he'd left a load of agar plates festering that grew mould, and he noticed that the mould on the agar plates stopped the growth of Staphylococcus bacteria on his mouldy agar plates. Now, the mould, a penicillin mould, is what we also grow in bread when we leave it in our bread bin for too long. Um, but what was so fantastic about this miraculous chance discovery was that he noticed that the mould growing was inhibiting the growth of the bacteria. And that's back in the 1920s. 
And in fact, it took you know, another 10 or so years before penicillin, as we know it, was purified and used for therapeutic use. And so that was really in the 19, early 1940s. But look, as soon as the antibiotic compound was produced and being used, immediately there's resistance. So as long as we have antimicrobials, we will have antimicrobial resistance. Life finds a way. Um, and in fact, you know, this paper in Nature, reported in 1940, identified that there was an enzyme being produced by these bacteria that could destroy penicillin and hence lead to uh, the ineffects, you know, making penicillin ineffectual against that bacteria. So antimicrobial resistance was born as soon as antimicrobials themselves were born. So how does antibiotic resistance actually occur? Well, at a very simple level, I won't go into you know, bacterial genomics in any detail here, but you have a community of bacteria. So by chance, by mutation, chance mutation, there may be, within that community, some of those bacteria that possess a mutation, which by chance leaves them resistant to a given compound or an antibiotic. In the face of that antibiotic, those bacteria will not be killed. They will survive. They will go on to multiply and take over, whereas the susceptible bacteria obviously die. And so we're left with a population of bacteria that are then resistant to that given antibiotic. And so um, the next thing to consider is because there are lots of different targets for where the antibiotic is working, there are also lots of different types of antimicrobial resistance. So it could be that the resistance mechanism means that the antibiotic is being pumped out of the bacterial cell before it can have any activity on the cell wall, so a so-called efflux pump. So that compound is just being pumped out of the bacterial cell wall, out of the bacterial cell. It could be that the porins or the little channels which the bacteria have in their cell wall through which the antibiotic can get into the cell walls, have their effect, maybe they've changed and the, the antibiotic can no longer get through those channels, so it could be decreased uptake into the bacterial cell. It could be that the bacteria have got mutations which allow them to um, secrete inactivating enzymes, so the enzymes will break down the antibiotics such that it's no longer effective. So there's a whole range of different ways a bacteria can become resistant. And importantly, those resistance genes can transfer from bacteria to bacteria on what we call mobile genetic elements. So these are ways that the bacteria can pass on their genetic code, which leads to a, mutation, which leads to a resistance trait between bacterial species and also in, interspecies could be on a little plasmid, which is a mobile circular piece of DNA. It could be on a transposon. It could be by a bacteriophage, which is a, a little virus that can infect bacterial cells. And there's um, you know, a number of ways that those um, resistance genes can be transferred from bacteria to bacteria. So antimicrobial resistance does spread. So why is it important? Well, we've all probably heard disaster statistics about AMR, antimicrobial resistance, and the predictions 
but by 2050, so in quarter of a century, we will see 10 million deaths a year due to AMR, which exceeds that of cancer. So this is you know, the global impact that we will be predicting we might be seeing in a quarter of a century, and I'm sure we'll hear more in Saki's talk about the actual direct impacts that it's already having in some areas of the world. And importantly, antimicrobial resistance does lead to prolonged illness, increased disability and death. We rely heavily on active antimicrobials for modern healthcare. So without antimicrobials, effective antimicrobials, we couldn't do safe surgery, safe chemotherapy, safe um, delivery of modern healthcare as we know it. And even a simple infection, a cystitis or a simple skin infection, if it's due to a resistance bacteria, becomes virtually untreatable. And of course, alongside that, massive cost involved. So it is important. And just to show you a few maps, uh, this is actually based on data from 2019 reported in The Lancet last year. So we've probably all heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So this is Staph aureus, a bug that many of us carry on our skin, in our throats. In the wrong place at the wrong time, Staphylococcus aureus can cause skin, skin infections and is the commonest cause of a cellulitis or a skin infection. And the best drug to treat that usually is a drug called flucloxacillin, which some of you may have had you know, throughout the course of your life. MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, is resistant to that flucloxacillin. There's nothing else special about the bug. It's not more dangerous or more pathogenic. It just means that the first-line antibiotic that we usually use doesn't work. And so if you look at this map, the areas in red have over 80% of their Staphylococcus aureus resistant to Staph aureus, uh, resistant to flucloxacillin, sorry. Um, and you can see there some pockets of red and orange, which are the hotspots for resistance, so particularly around the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, um, but also the US, you can notice that 50 to 60% of their Staph aureus is actually resistant. Um, in New Zealand, we're a little island of blue down in the, in the corner there, up to 10%, and we've very much got a geographical spread of where we have most MRSA, much more concentrated in the North Island than here down in the South Island, where our local rates of MRSA are around about 4 to 5%. Third generation cephalosporin resistant E. coli. So these are E. coli. So that's a, a bacteria that we all carry in our gut and is also the commonest cause of a urinary tract infection or a cystitis. Cephalosporins, third generation cephalosporins are antibiotics that we use in the hospital to treat significant infections. And they are really a cornerstone of treatment. So if you came into hospital with a bloodstream infection with E. coli, you would receive a third generation cephalosporin, usually in New Zealand. And you can see here, again, hotspots in red. Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, 70 to 80% of their E. coli are resistant to third-generation cephalosporins. Whereas, again, New Zealand, little pocket of blue down there, local rates probably around about 5%. So the real difference wherever you are in the world. 
And then the next stage, carbapenem resistance. So carbapenems are drugs that, again, we use in hospitals. You'll hear more about those, I'm sure, from Saki's talk. These are last-line antibiotics, which are life-saving for more resistant bacteria. We rarely see carbapenem resistance in New Zealand. But look here. Again, Indian subcontinent, up to 50% of the Klebsiella pneumoniae, so another bacteria that lives in our gut, common cause of things like urinary tract infection, up to 50% resistant to these last-line antibiotics, carbapenems. So locally in New Zealand, we do report on our antimicrobial resistance rates. And if we just stick with the most severe form of resistance that we're seeing at the moment, the carbapenem resistance, you can see here tracts over time. We, probably, we had our first one that was identified in New Zealand back in 2012. We've seen a steady increase. From 2019, you can see a drop-off in the number of these carbapenem-resistant bacteria. Can anybody think why that might be? 2019? Look at that. COVID. So we shut our borders. And so consequently, consequently, the carbapenem-resistance rate did drop. We've since reopened our borders, and the carbapenem-resistance rate has obviously gone back up. Um, and for this year, we're predicting it's probably actually off the, off the top of the scale for that graph. So, um, you know, it's a real threat to our shores. We may think about antimicrobial resistance as things happening overseas, but it's very much happening here in New Zealand. And just to show you, this is a real patient that I was involved. Um, this was a chap. He was admitted probably back in 2019 now. And that was his urine culture results. So this was a urine sample that came to our laboratory for testing. We grew a Klebsiella pneumoniae from that urine sample, and we tested it against a whole range of different antibiotics that are listed there, the susceptibilities. And the R next to the name of the antibiotic means it's resistant. There are no S's there, S for susceptible. So that was really quite a dire situation for this guy. And also, we cultured his blood. So we had a sample of blood sent to our laboratory. We also grew the same organism from his bloodstream. So we had a bloodstream infection. And again, lots of resistance, uh, except for one drug, amicacin, which retains susceptibility. The trouble with that drug is it's highly nephrotoxic, so really quite toxic to the kidneys. Um, we were actually fortunate. We were able to get hold of a drug that they held at Middlemore Hospital, which did work against this bacteria, and he actually made a full recovery. But we don't have ready access to a lot of those newer drugs coming through, and often New Zealand is in a situation where we only get hold of them maybe a few years down the track when Pharmac allow us to have access. So antimicrobial resistance, it's a real threat. We're seeing infections within New Zealand. How can we detect it? So in my laboratory, um, which is a diagnostic laboratory for humans, so we only do human work, um, you may have a blood test or a urine or a swab or something else that comes to our laboratory. We may streak that sample onto an agar plate or put the blood culture bottles into our incubators, look at the plates the next day, see what's growing. If we think it's something that's significant and probably a cause of an infection, we'll need to identify, well, what is the species? And then also, what antibiotics is it likely to be susceptible to? So 
The majority of our susceptibility work is actually based on fairly simple technology, which in involves an agar plate uh, and some little filter paper discs, which have got antibiotics penetrated into those discs. And we streak a lawn of the bacteria and put on the discs, incubate, and see what happens. And so hopefully you can see the picture. But can you see that there's an area around each antibiotic disc where there's no bacteria growing. So that means that the antibiotic in the paper disc has diffused out into the agar and stopped the growth of bacteria. So what we call uh, it's a zone of inhibition. And we look to see exactly how big that zone of inhibition is to determine is that bacteria susceptible to that antibiotic. There are also automated methods that we do use as well, which um, means you can test a battery of different antibiotics and get a more specific, not just a susceptible or resistant result, but actually how susceptible is it, and get an actual figure or reading for that. So here are two plates from my laboratory. One of those is a carbapenem-resistant E. coli, and one of them is a fully susceptible E. coli. Can you tell which one's which from that plate? It's a trick question, though you can't, because these plates are non-selective. So we've got blood agar on the left, and we've got a chromogenic agar on the right half of the plate, which just makes the bacteria go pink. So I can look at that plate and say that's an E. coli. But the carbapenem-resistant E. coli looks exactly the same as the carbapenem-susceptible E. coli based on that, but this agar has got meropenem infused into the agar. So which bacteria do you think, which plate do you think has the resistant bacteria now? So it's the one on the left where it's still growing. Even though there's meropenem in that agar, it can grow through that. So the one on the left is demonstrating the resistance to meropenem. And here we've done our susceptibility testing, so various different antibiotics in the paper discs. And you can see our susceptible E. coli on the right, where you've got nice big zones of inhibition, whereas on the left, there's lots of growth right up to the discs. So that's a resistant bacteria. And so we do use phenotypic testing. So what does the growth of the bacteria look like in the face of an antibiotic phenotypic testing? And also, this is a different type of testing where we have a gradient of the antibiotic in that strip. So at the bottom, it's a very weak concentration, moving up to a high concentration. And you can say, you know, what, how, how resistant is this bacteria to this particular antibiotic? Now, if we want to know exactly the genotypic mechanism, we can use polymerase chain reaction. And we do use that to identify exactly what is the mechanism, what is the gene behind this resistance profile that we're seeing. Um, and there are various different molecular techniques that we can use. These are more expensive. So you're looking at probably $50 for a PCR test, whereas you're looking at a few cents for agar and discs. So how can we prevent antimicrobial resistance? Well, we can't, really. Um, but we do know that there is a very high correlation between the amount of antibiotics that we use and the, the amount of resistance that we see. So, for example, you can't actually read different countries, but this is a, a graph showing penicillin resistance in Streptococcus pneumoniae, so a bacteria that we all carry 
or we can carry in our upper airways, but can, is also the most common cause of a bacterial pneumonia. Penicillin is usually the drug of choice, but penicillin resistance does occur. And this line basically shows there's a direct correlation between the amount of penicillin in use in a particular country and the amount of resistance that they see. And similarly for ciprofloxacin resistance in E. coli, so ciprofloxacin is a drug that we use for urinary tract infections and the like. And again, a direct correlation between how much ciprofloxacin is used within a country and how much resistance is seen. So we know that antibiotic consumption does drive resistance. So if we look at the overall consumption of antibiotics per country, there are high users and lower users. So on the right-hand side, we've got Greece as a very high user of antibiotics. On the left-hand side, we've got Scandinavian countries that overall are lower users. Where do you think New Zealand sits on this graph, if you could hazard a guess? Right or left, somewhere in the middle? Middle? No, we are right towards the end, the right-hand side. So we're very high users of antibiotics in New Zealand. Some of you look a bit surprised about that. Yeah, probably because um, we don't see an awful lot of resistance, so you would take from that, well, we can't use very much antibiotics. I would say that probably New Zealand is an outlier. We use a lot of antibiotics, but we don't see a lot of resistance, probably because of our geographical isolation, not because of our prudent use of antibiotics. So most of our antibiotics are used in the community, up to 95%, not in the hospital. And we have seen a year-on-year increase. Possibly the trend is changing. Almost every child in New Zealand has been exposed to an antibiotic by the time they turn five. And um, about half of people who visited their GP in 2017 would dispense at least one antibiotic. So one of the things we need to do to try and prevent the rise in antimicrobial resistance is increase our public awareness of this problem, as well as lots of other important um, activities, such as uh, looking at vaccines and alternative treatments so we don't rely on antibiotics, making sure that we've got good surveillance strategies, rapid diagnostics, we need to invest in drug discovery. Um, but one of the things we need to really think about is whether we really need an antibiotic when we fall sick. Now, we know that antibiotics only work against bacteria, but we also know that a lot of viral infections get wrongly treated with antibiotics. So viruses such as colds, flus, etc., there's no, there's no need for an antibiotic. It won't have any activity against that. But look here. This is data from the ESR, which looked at antibiotic consumption. And what you can notice from this graph is the annual or the seasonal variability in antibiotic prescriptions and consumption. So, sorry, this pointer isn't working, but a peak every winter of antibiotics. So that's really telling us that even though we know we shouldn't be taking an antibiotic for a flu or a cold, actually a lot of, uh, a high proportion of that prescribing is for probably the winter colds and flus, which is not, which is not necessary. And one of the reasons we're so concerned about antimicrobial resistance is that the antibiotic discovery pipeline is, is not 
as robust as it should be. So obviously there's a lot of activity, a lot of new drugs and compounds discovered in the 40s and 50s, and really that pipeline has kind of dried up. Um, and there's a number of different reasons behind that. Um, and there's a lot of work happening now to try and re-incentivize um, development of new antibacterial treatments to really target these highly drug-resistant bacteria that we're seeing. So I'm going to stop talking there. We've discussed really just a very high-level introduction what antimicrobial resistance is. Hopefully you realise why it's all important, how we can detect it, and some of the things we can do to prevent it. I think on an individual level, it's, it's that expectation of not needing an antibiotic necessarily for viruses, which is really key, public messaging. And so I'd just like to say thank you for listening, and also thank you to our fantastic medical laboratory scientists and technicians who are working away in our diagnostic lab, who really, they do all the work, um, and I just kind of talk to people about it. So um, I don't know if we want to stop for questions, or we'll move on. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. So I'll hand over to Saki now. Uh, kia ora, everyone. Uh, kia ora, uh, Maori, Talofalawa, Talofa, Nisambula Vinaka, and a very warm and warm Pacific greetings <coughs> from Fiji uh, to all of you uh, here in the middle of cold city of Dunedin. <laughs> <coughs> so uh, today, uh, as I stand before you today, uh, I will just be sharing you uh, some of the burning issues uh, that affects us all, and that is antimicrobial resistance. And I know that uh, uh, Dr. Juliet have mentioned the basic of antimicrobial uh, resistance, the threat of antimicrobial resistance, and now I will be taking us to, to, to the Pacific, and that uh, involves uh, us as well, uh, who are all sitting here today. <coughs> and I guess, uh, most importantly, I want to emphasize the importance of us all uh, understanding the, the importance of uh, knowing the current state of antimicrobial resistance in our space and how they have been uh, circulated in, in our Pacific context uh, as a whole. So for us in the uh, Pacific Island countries from the islands, uh, the islands consist of 22 countries uh, as per the South Pacific Commission. Uh, they have categorized them uh, into uh, Polynesian, Melanesian, and so forth, uh, and uh, with a population of 12 million. <clears throat> so 22 countries with a population of 12 million. And one of the challenges in fighting against antimicrobial resistance is uh, the geographical locations. You can see in the map that they are, uh, most of the islands are isolated, meaning that uh, they may have uh, difficulties in finding early treatments for medical uh, interventions as well. Uh, you can see that uh, as per the World Bank organization, they classify most of our Pacific Island countries uh, to be low and middle income countries. So. Uh, geographical locations uh, is one of our disadvantages in terms of uh, seeking uh, early intervention and early uh, medical uh, treatment as well. Uh, those are some of the challenges uh, in terms of trying to combat antimicrobial resistance uh, that we may face in the island. Uh, secondly, we, one of the disadvantages of uh, we having a poor economic diversity that leads to poor health uh, infrastructure development and also a fragile health system. Uh, most of us uh, in the islands, we work within whatever we have, 
uh, without, uh, with uh, minimum uh, financial support that we have uh, in our space. So <clears throat> in terms of medical uh, treatment or medical interventions or medical uh, initiatives, that promotes awareness in terms of uh, fighting against antimicrobial resistance. If we don't have enough funds to finance us in those kind of program, that is one of the challenges that can also uh, limit the advocating on the fight against antimicrobial resistance. <clears throat> and of course, high disease burden as well. Uh, in the Fiji context, Fiji is regarded as one of the, uh, the most uh, uh, country in the world that uh, being uh, have the highest burden of bacterial infections uh, in the world. So uh, on top of that, uh, that means a lot of antibiotic usage as well. Uh, I guess uh, in other Pacific Island countries as well, we are being bombarded with different kinds of infectious diseases, such as salmonella infections, such as leptospirosis, uh, diabetes, that ended up with, uh, with uh, 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 amputations, that can up with uh, that can ended up with wound infections that might lead to to usage of uh, antimicrobials as well, <clears throat> and of course the high mobility. Uh, most of our individuals within the Pacific is high mobility or high movement, high level of movement that is happening uh, within the uh, the Pacific region. Uh, you can see in here the the heavy movement or the high mobility of individuals that are moving. Uh, within the Pacific uh, areas. Uh, they're going out, uh, they're also considered as the medical uh, destination, uh, medical, uh, sorry, tourist uh, destinations. So most of our people from New Zealand and Australia and other countries, they come over to spend uh, holidays uh, in, in, in the islands as well. And for us, uh, most of us, we come over to New Zealand and Australia for medical treatment as well. And that exacerbates the, the transmissions of uh, antimicrobial resistance as well. So with those challenges, uh, uh, our research uh, group, uh, we embark on the journey uh, to Samoa, where we try to go and collect some of the isolates from Samoa with the aim of trying to find out the, uh, how this resistance of AMR pathogens have been circulating uh, in, the, uh, in the Pacific. So we managed to get some uh, bacterial isolates from, uh, from Samoa, uh, specifically for Asintobacter bomani, uh, or Kabarpanum resistant Asintobacter bomani. <clears throat> and also some isolates from Fiji. Uh, these were collected from the patients uh, hospitalized uh, in uh, hospitals in Fiji and Samoa. We managed to reach out to ESR. Uh, they provided us with some of the, uh, some of the data that they have and also from Australia in 2016 to 2017, there was an outbreak of carbapenem resistance happening at the Brisbane Hospital, for which we tried to, to get hold on those uh, sequence data that were publicly available. And just for the sake of trying to find out the transmission pathways of these AMR pathogens in the region. And also we, we tried to look at some of the uh, AMR pathogens in India. Uh, you may be asking why India? Uh, most of our Fijian patients, we go to India for medical treatment as well. So that's why we try to get hold on some of the sequence data from the AMR surveillance from India as well. So we managed to get it that were publicly available. Uh, and from the Samoan isolates and Fiji isolates, uh, we managed to bring those isolates over. And then we did some kind of sequencing or whole genome sequencing 
we're trying to decode the genomic information of those antimicrobial resistance pathogens that we managed to, to identify from various uh, uh, countries like Samoa and Fiji. And those from New Zealand and Australia and India, they already have those genetic informations that are available online. So you may be wondering what is Cabapanum uh, uh, Syntobacter, Cabapanum uh, resistance. I guess uh, Dr. Julie have uh, already mentioned touch base on the uh, on the Cabapanums. And Cabapanum, of course, just the last uh, uh, class of antibiotics, a class of uh, beta-lactam antibiotics that includes penicillin as well, uh, keflosporin, and of course the last line, which is Cabapanum resistant. And they are normally uh, used as the last line of uh, treatment in the hospitals. For Syntobacter bumani, Syntobacter bumani is just a soil uh, environment or environmental bacteria <coughs> that able to survive in hospital environments. So they able to survive in hospital environment, and they have the ability to uh, to resist multiple antibiotics. So they have the ability to resist those, and also resist desiccations, meaning that they can survive in dry conditions as well for longer periods of time. <coughs> and of course, a huge threat to our patients with uh, uh, immunocompromised. So just, uh, uh, I want to put up some video and just an illustration of uh, the, how we can defeat our last line of defense. So this is just, uh, I know that uh, our brothers here in Aotearoa love their rugby as well as uh, us in the Pacific Island. So this is just, in yesteryears, we managed to, to beat the uh, the bugs or those bacteria. So those uh, uh, bacterial infections, we can treat those bacterial infections with antibiotics that are available. So we managed to, to bring them down. But just just few days or few years back, we have seen that those resistant, that those pathogens have becoming resistant. <coughs> They're becoming resistant. They acquire the knowledge and the skills and they becoming uh, more potent and they're becoming more stronger and stronger and develop themselves to becoming resistant to those antibiotics that we have. And that is the last line of uh, antibiotics that we have, which is Cabapanum. And one of the things that they, that they also do, they're becoming smart by getting those uh, genetic information, those skills that they acquire from somebody, from another bacteria, and then they pass it over to another, as mentioned by Juliet. So they have those kind of mobile elements that they that they, they pass on those knowledge on to, to those bacteria, making them more resistant to, to antibiotics. In this context, to cabapenems, which is the last resort of antimicrobials. So taking us back to our research uh, findings, so we have some significant findings from what we have found from those isolates that we have collected uh, from various countries. So we managed to find out that those uh, cabapenem resistance uh, asymptobactable money <coughs> In Samoa, they carry multiple of antibiotic resistance uh, genes. So they have those uh, mechanisms that that produces a flux pump that uh, Juliet have uh, mentioned, that pumps out all those antibiotics out. They also have uh, carbapenemase enzyme that neutralizes those carbapenem antibiotic, making them uh, ineffective. And the prevalence rate for that uh, in Samoa was uh, around about 60% of uh, carbapenem resistance, syntobactable money. And I can see in Juliet's slide that uh, the Pacific wasn't mentioned in that. So this is the story for us to take. 
that 60% of carbapenem resistance were from Samoa. And for Fiji, we also found out the similar strain that is circulating in Fiji. And we found out that there was a prolonged outbreak, undetected outbreaks happening within hospital in Fiji, with 57% of carbapenem resistance in the Bumani, also resistant to all the antibiotics that we tested against them. So from ESR, we saw the similar organisms in ESR that they have provided us with the sequence data. They also carry those antibiotic resistance uh, genes, and as well as the one in Brisbane uh, outbreak in 2016 to 2017. And when we looked at out, uh, and when we looked out uh, what happens in India, we saw that they carry similar strain that is spreading in, in the region as well. So we did further analysis on the on the gen uh, genomic informations of those uh, uh, strains and tried to find out whether they are closely related or not, genetically closely related or not. And we found out that there were three clusters that we are so interested in. And one of them is those, that big cluster, that <clears throat> shows that they are closely related. In that cluster, we can see that consists of isolates from Samoa, Fiji, uh, Brisbane outbreak, the one collected from ESR, New Zealand, they were all connected together. So they were genetically linked in terms of uh, our genomic uh, analysis. So we can see that all those, uh, that there is a outbreak load, we call it an Oceania, carbapenem uh, resistant outbreak load, because it's circulating within the Oceania region. And on top of that, Interestingly, we found that these resistant strains, they carry uh, disinfectant-resistant genes as well. They persist those commonly used disinfectants that we normally use in the hospital. So this is very uh, scary when we, when we look down into the genomic information of what this Oceania outbreak clone <coughs> are carrying. So we look at the second cluster, and we found out that there was a linkage between Fiji and India in terms of another strain that is circulating, that causing the outbreak in Fiji as well, will link to India. <clears throat> and then we look at the third cluster that we are interested in. Then we can see that there is some isolates from New Zealand connect, uh, have similar strain to the one collected from India. But when we look at the, uh, the data or the travel history of those uh, patients from New Zealand, we found out that they were previously hospitalized in Fiji before coming over to New Zealand. So that gives us an hypothesis that there may be three outbreak loans circulating in Fiji. And we have to, to, to look deeper into what is happening in, in the Fiji's context in terms of antimicrobial resistance. So I guess uh, that's, that's the, the story of uh, what I'm trying to, to, to emphasize today, is the current state of what is carbapenem resistance in the Pacific, and that affects us all. And we have talked about, uh, we have heard the story about the Bermuda Triangle, and now we can see this Oceania Triangle of AMR pathogens circulating within our region. So just to conclude, uh, yes, we have seen the, the circulation of AMR pathogens, and that is the, the last resort uh, antibiotic that we have, and these resistant pathogens have managed to, to play their part and knock us down. Uh, and uh, I hope there's lots of uh, incentives in terms of uh, developing new drugs 
that can fight, that we can use to fight against the, the antimicrobial resistant pathogens that is circulating within our space. And there's an urgent need for combating MR in the wider Pacific context and the Oceania region as well. And of course, it may require a collaborative uh, initiatives and coordinated AMR surveillance. I have shown in the very first, uh, second slide, how geographically isolated our Pacific Islands are. And this is one of the reasons I put it up here, a very collaborative initiatives that we need to. Uh, we have poor infrastructure, we have poor economic drivers, and that's why we, we need those kind of technical support, those budgetary support and management support. And I'm thankful for University of Otago and Greg for giving me the opportunity to be here. And that, I guess, that meets the requirements of that technical uh, know-how on, on coming to learn and take it back to our community on what we have found from this research. Uh, also, I want to show you the power of, uh, of technology, of whole genome sequencing that enable us to identify those undetected outbreaks and prolonged outbreaks and the circulation of AMR pathogens within our region. And of course, I guess after this, from the story that we have just shared with Juliet, that you can go back and share it to other friends the importance of understanding the state of AMR pathogens in our uh, region as well. So sit around, have some cover, have some talent session uh, regarding AMR pathogens. Yeah, and just a few appreciation to, to our health, uh, to our research team who have contributed immensely in the work that I am uh, just a vessel to come in and present it to you all today. Thank you. I think Saki's talk and Juliet's talk actually demonstrates why we need to be good global citizens, right? So often we get criticised, why are you working on tuberculosis? That's not a problem in New Zealand. But if we don't work on these problems in these countries where they have huge rates of resistance, you can see that this resistance is arriving at New Zealand's border. So that's why we need to engage, right? We can't just shut ourselves off and look at all the problems in New Zealand. So great illustration of that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the use of antibiotics in agriculture. And what I want to look at is the benefits, the risks and the challenges and what really the future holds for the use of antimicrobials in this area. So Julie had already touched on this, but this, this is just highlighting the fact that that number that was published in 2014 that said that 10 million people are going to die by the year 2050 if we don't do anything about AMR, well, we're already heading in that direction because this was a survey that just came out last year and it already shows 1.7 1.27 million deaths as a direct result of AMR. Another 5 million people died from illnesses in which bacterial AMR played a role. So anybody think that that 10 million number is not going to be attainable? Well, we're already heading in a very fast direction. And as, as you showed, the COVID pandemic slowed it down, but now it's coming back with vengeance. So we've already touched on this. Antimicrobial resistance is here. It's going to stay with us forever. Bacteria have been evolving for 3.5 billion years. All the antibiotics out there are hundreds of millions of years old. So bacteria have already developed all the resistant mechanisms for all the antimicrobials out there in the environment. So we're never going to keep pace with AMR. It's always going to be a fight. Um, we need to develop 
new antimicrobials, we need to develop new diagnostics, we need to develop new vaccines, right? These are the strategies to combat AMR. But I think the biggest thing that we need to look at, and Juliet touched on this in her talk, is we basically need to reduce antimicrobial consumption because the more antibiotics we use, the more resistance, the faster it spreads, it becomes a vicious cycle. So we need to really reduce our consumption. However, if you look at all the predictions out there in the literature, uh, basically antimicrobial consumption is going to increase. Right, advances in surgery, endowing devices, people, we need more antibiotics. We saw that antibiotics are using, being used inappropriately, so we're going to actually consume more antibiotics in the future, not less. And when we look in the animal space, in terms of food production, these numbers are very scary, right? So this is what antimicrobial consumption looks like in the year 2030, and you can see food production is a massive consumer of antimicrobials, 70% of all the antimicrobials we used are used in food production, animal food production. And you can see as China, Brazil, you, countries like that, just, they're just gearing up for this, right? So we're going to have huge amounts of antimicrobials being used in the future in this area just to feed the planet. So we're going to need some really novel strategies to try and um, overcome this. So antibiotics have been used in agriculture for a very long time. You can see that back in 1937, just as we discovered penicillin, we were already using it in animals, right? So we were using it in animals to treat sick animals, but as you can see, we're also using it in there as growth promotion, prophylaxis, you know, things that antibiotics were never meant to be used for. So in 1951, the USDA, um, US Food Drug Association, approved antibiotics in animal feeds without a veterinary prescription. So didn't need a vet to start putting antibiotics in the feed. In New Zealand, they only really stopped that practice, you know, probably a decade ago, but certainly um, didn't need a veterinary prescription. So you can see we started using antibiotics in animal feeds. We started spraying them on plants, uh, started using them in fish production, you know, shellfish everywhere that they weren't designed to be used in. Um, the Swan Report came out in 1969 and started to paint a picture that there was a risk associated with doing this. If we go on, you can see um, the Europeans were really the first to ban them, right? So the Europeans back in 1997 banned avaparsin, and they banned avaparsin in poultry production because what they were able to basically show is that there were bacteria in this poultry that were resistant to avaparsin, so this was an antibiotic that was being used subtherapeutically in growth promotion, and unfortunately avaparsin belongs to the same class of antibiotics as vancomycin, which is one of the last antibiotics that we use to treat MRSA, right? It's one of the last antibiotics that we can use. And so the Europeans realised that there were these massive reservoirs of avaparsin, and vancomycin-resistant organisms in poultry, so they banned the use of this. We never banned this antibiotic in New Zealand. We only stopped using it because they stopped producing it, right? So the Europeans have always led the way here. Uh, the EU um, also have banned antibiotic feed additives as growth promotants. And then the latest bans that have come out, uh, the Americans are starting to get on board. About 2019, they are also starting to ban the use of antimicrobials in animal production. And China are also doing this. So a lot of countries now are banning this, this process of basically putting antibiotics into feed to make animals grow fast. So, of course, we need antibiotics in animal food production. The reason for that is that um, animals get sick just like us, so we need to have treatment of clinical disease. So there's no issues in therapeutic use. Right, animal gets sick, you treat it therapeutically. 
prophylactic use, um, such as poultry. So we still use antibiotics prophylactically in poultry. Bacitracin is a good example, about 26,000 kgs a year, right? So prophylactic use to stop the animals getting sick. Um, metaphylaxis is when we basically mass medicate a large flock of poultry chickens so that once again, if one chicken gets sick, it doesn't take out the whole flock. Growth promotion, as I said, the big problem is it's subtherapeutic. And these are some of the antibiotics that are actually used as growth promoters. So it's not just one or two, there's a large list of them. So this is problematic. So as Juliet touched on, antibiotics are fantastic for curing bacterial infections because the bacteria have got molecular targets that these antibiotics hit. Right, and those targets are essential for the viability of the organism, so basically antibiotics are very effective. And our cells don't have those targets, so obviously it's a magic bullet. The problem is that basically when we use these antibiotics, bacteria become resistant to them. Right? The other really important thing to realise is that these same classes of antibiotics that we're using in humans are being used in animals. Right? So what we end up developing is these reservoirs of resistant organisms. So as you can see, if we use antibiotics in humans, we develop resistant organisms. If we use antibiotics in animals, we develop resistant organisms. Because they're the same class of antibiotics, then you see the same mechanisms of resistance. And the, and the fear, of course, is that those resistant determinants or those organisms can transfer in the food chain. So that is a concern. So one of the, the last antibiotics, and, and we just heard about some of the multi-drug resistant gram-negative organisms, one of the last antibiotics that we could actually use to treat some of those multi-drug resistant gram negs was an antibiotic called clodistin. The problem was that this antibiotic was also being used in pig production in China. And so the fear was that at some stage a bacterium, you know, a gram-negative organism might become resistant to this antibiotic. And so this organism was actually detected in China around 2016. It was on a mobile genetic element and that now has transferred into human isolates, right? So this is a big problem, right? One of the last resort antibiotics, resistance is already present, both in animals and humans. So this is one of the, a very good example of where antibiotics used in animals created a resistant organism that was then able to transfer via the food chain to humans and now cause clinical infections. If you look at antibiotic consumption, as I mentioned, 70% of all antibiotics are used in animals, and this is how much we use. So if we look at animals, around 118 mg per kg versus humans, it's about 130 mg per kg. But the big problem here, of course, is that animals far outnumber humans on the planet. So that means that the, the massive amounts of antibiotics used in animals basically dwarfs that used in humans. And as I said, about 70% of all antibiotics if you go to different countries and you look at the range, then what you see is that the number varies from about 8 mg per kilogram of animal right up to 318 mg per kg of animal. So there's this massive variation in how much antibiotics are being used in animals. So this 318 mg per kg is a, is a number that's often found in China. If you look over here, so I think Juliet showed a really nice graph that New Zealand is a massive user of, of antibiotics in human, huge amounts of prescription. This is the use of antibiotics in animals. So these are New Zealand antibiotic sales in New Zealand for use in the poultry industry, deer industry, and as you can see, we are not decreasing, right? That is very constant. And as I said, one of the antibiotics 
that we use is, is bacitracin. We use about 20,000 kgs a year of that in basically chicken production. So what we really need to do is come up with some novel solutions to basically reduce the amount of antibiotics that we're using in animal food production. So these are three ideas that are out there and could be implemented. And basically what it shows is the impact this could have. So just by reducing the amount of antibiotic to 50 megs of antibiotic per kg, so don't go up to 318, but just mandate that it cannot be more than 50 megs per kg, this will reduce antibiotic consumption by 64%. Right? So that is a massive number simply by bringing in this rule. Um, China have adopted this policy, and then this would reduce this by 60% by the year 2030. Meat consumption. Basically, stop eating red meat or reduce your, the amount of red meat you're eating. So, for example, if you were to limit your meat intake to 40 grams per day, that would actually reduce antibiotic consumption by 66%. Right? So you can see, if we use less antibiotics in, in food production, reduce the amount of red meat that we're eating, also what we could do is we could apply a tax. Right? So if you want to feed antibiotics to animals, you're going to pay a tax. And we're going to use that money to basically drive drug discovery and innovation. Because as Juliet shows, we're not very good at discovering antibiotics. But there is a lot of activity in this area. So this, this tax would also then reduce the amount of antibiotics that are being used. Stewardship is another one. So as I said, just try to outlaw some of these practices, right? So the EU have banned the administration of antibiotics to healthy animals. You know, that's effective 28th of January 2022. So that's a big concern for New Zealand because what that means is that the EU will not accept exports from New Zealand where we have used antibiotics in this space. So this is going to have a big impact on us, right? Because we still do dry cow therapy. We still use antibiotics prophylactically. France, once again, going to ban the imports of meats from animals treated with growth promoters. New Zealand is very lucky because our poultry industry, we don't export any of it. It's all we eat it all locally, but you can imagine if we exported poultry, it would be banned in these countries. They would not accept it because we've used antibiotics in the farming of those animals. Right? So this is a big risk for New Zealand because we're a massive exporter of animals, I mean, in terms of food production. So the Veterinary Association have come out and basically made statements like, we will not be using any antibiotics in animals by the year 2030. I mean, this is very aspirational. Is it achievable? Because... If you're going to achieve that, you need to give them some other tools. It's like, it's like doctors that over-prescribed antibiotics. If we gave them molecular diagnostics or tools to help them make a diagnosis right then and there, whether it was bacterial or viral, then obviously they wouldn't do that. So we can come out and make statements like this, but we really need to figure out what are the tools, or what, are the, what are we going to give farmers, what are we going to give vets to basically use in animals for the future. Uh, New Zealand actually does have a very low use of antimicrobials in food animals. It's one, of the, it's one of the lowest in the world, so that's a good thing. Um, but of course, you know, we also still use them prophylactically in pig and poultry production, so we'd like to sort of reduce that if we can. Uh, zinc bacitracin is the one that I think that we should take a serious look at. Um, people probably say, well, it doesn't matter, zinc bacitracin is not really used to treat disease in humans, so therefore, why don't we just keep using it in animals? That's often the argument, but um, I think there's some data coming out. In terms of stewardship, um, our vets have got fantastic stewardship of antibiotics. 
Raya's probably, you know, leading the doctors in some of these areas. Uh, they've come up with this scheme here, this traffic light system, which basically says we shouldn't use these antibiotics for this infection. This is a green antibiotic. We can use these. This is yellow. We need to be very careful if we're going to use this antibiotic in an animal. This is red. We should not be doing this, right? So, so the vets are actually leading the way, right? So they're taking control of how they're using these antibiotics. So then the question is, what other strategies or technologies could we do to reduce antimicrobials in animals or limit the risk to human medicine, right? So, so what other strategies can we do? So the big problem, and I hope, I hope I've sort of articulated that, is that the problem that we have is that we have an antibiotic. We use that antibiotic to treat, for example, mastitis in a cow. We might use that same antibiotic to treat a bacterial infection in humans. We might also use that same antibiotic to treat an infection in our pets. Right? So it's the same antibiotic. We're just using it across this. So what this creates is one resistome. So if we have a bacterium that's resistant to that in a cow, then the there is an opportunity that that drug-resistant strain could transfer by the food chain to humans so that when that human is treated with the same antibiotic, the organism is already resistant. These arrows should actually go both ways because it's now known that humans can actually transfer drug-resistant isolates to animals. There are very good examples of this. And also our pets, we can transfer antibiotic resistance to our pets and our pets can transfer it back to us. So those arrows, that's why they're double-arrowed. So this, so this is the problem. So what we'd really like to do is basically break that link. Right? And the only way to break that link is if we can develop human-only medicines and animal-only medicines because then we, do not, then we actually end up with two resistomes because we're not using the same antibiotics to treat infections in humans. We're using a different class of antibiotics to treat infections in animals. Right? So we want to break that link. So, yeah, break the link between human and veterinary medicine so we get rid of this one resistome and then we basically can safeguard against the exchange of antimicrobial resistance determinants between animals, plants and humans, right? So we'd basically develop narrow-spectrum agents. So in actual fact, um, what would you want this to look like, right? So you'd want this to be a new class of antimicrobials that would be used exclusively to treat infections in animals or plants. We'd want to make sure that that new class of compounds had very little impact on the soil and animal microbiomes. We'd also want it to have very low residue risk. Right? We'd also want it to have a good pharmacokinetic profile. We'd also want it to have a very distinct mechanism of action so that when we use this compound in animals or plants or the environment, it doesn't create resistance in organisms that then gives it cross-resistance to various antibiotics. Uh, and obviously these compounds should have no medical relevance in human medicine. Otherwise you'd have to ask yourself, why are you doing this? Right? So that's, doctors wouldn't be happy about that. So Craig Grant, it's very interesting that he's sitting here because actually Craig Grant was the one that put us on this journey. Right? So we come up with a strategy that we would develop this new class of compounds. So in order to do that, you need a pretty good team. So of course you need microbiologists, you need people that know how to formulate drugs you need people that are doing research in bioethics because there's a whole lot of ethical issues around this. You need medicinal chemists because basically they're going to synthesise these molecules. They're going to develop new intellectual property. Obviously, that's good for New Zealand Inc. Um, you obviously need vets because they're going to do the testing of this compound. You need agribusiness. And obviously, you need extremely talented research students and postdocs who are going to drive these projects. So we put this to MB. 
They thought it was a good idea. They gave us $10 million and told us to go away. So thank you, Craig, for getting us there. Sorry this is not showing up very well, but what we were able to do is we took, we took a compound that was actually being developed for Alzheimer's and Huntington's disease. It was a compound called PBT2. Um, the problem with this compound, it, it failed in the clinical trials. It didn't fail in the clinical trials because of toxicity. It just didn't have any efficacy. What we were able to then discover was that this compound actually had strong antimicrobial activity. And its antimicrobial activity was because this molecule could pick up zinc and transport it into a bacterial cell and basically cause intoxication of the organism. So what we were able to do was to, we didn't own that compound. It was an old Procter & Gamble compound. So our medicinal chemists basically started altering that molecule so that we could create intellectual property. We were able to patent that molecule. We were able to synthesize hundreds of these molecules. Um, and to cut a long story short, we got a very good patent on this. And so now we have a compound. It's got antimicrobial activity. This is just one example. So these are organisms that cause mastitis in New Zealand dairy animals, Staph aureus, Streptococcus hubris, and E. coli. And what you can basically see is that this new class of molecules has got very, very strong activity against all of these organisms. Um, there are various tests that we need to um, perform to see if these organisms, uh, see if these antimicrobials could actually pass the test for killing these mastitis organisms. We've done that. We're now moving into cow trials. So this would be one of the first, we're calling them green antimicrobials because specifically they've been developed for use in animals. There's no equivalent clinical class in humans. We also know that these compounds are multi-action. So we can, we've tried lots and lots of times, we can't develop resistance to these compounds. So at the stage, there's no resistance to these molecules. Um, that's not saying in the future that there wouldn't be. So keep in mind, these are fully synthetic. These are, these are man-made compounds, right? So bacteria have not seen these in their evolution. And it comes up with a novel mode of action, right? So it doesn't hit a molecular target in the cell, like classical antibiotics. It basically intoxicates, kills the cell by zinc overload. So that's where we are. So it shows that New Zealand, you know, we're engaged in this. We're trying to come up with new strategies. Um, new Zealand's a giant farm, so it's really important that we engage in this if we want to keep farming. Um, and obviously, just want to thank all the people in my lab um, that have done this. And, and obviously, our new ag at Otago, our new agri innovation degree, this is going to be important because uh, the students coming through can then take these molecules and we can start business. So... I'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Kia ora to our panel. I'm happy to take any audience questions, should there be any. Uh, thank you so much. That was really, really um, intriguing and very interesting. I guess my question is more for is it Juliet. Um, I'm just wondering about the surveillance data. You know, you showed us that we've got in New Zealand we've got one of you know some, a, quite a high prescription rate of antibiotics. How routine is surveillance of resistance? And I'm assuming that must, much of that prescription is through primary care. Is there a, a system of um, I guess surveillance amongst and I'm thinking more of about our, our Māori and Pacifica kids who have um, probably one of the highest uh, rates of antibiotics for skin infections and what have you. But is there something in the community around surveillance? Um, so I think what you're asking about is surveillance of antimicrobial usage rather than resistance, or resistance as well. So... Um, 
there are annual tables of certain drug-bug combinations. So there are certain um, antibiotic resistances within certain species that we're interested in tracking. And that data is freely available online for New Zealand. Um, and um, what we need better surveillance on, I would argue, is actually usage and prescription rates, which we don't have good data on. So we don't have good information about who, who's using these antibiotics and for what purpose. And that's really something that New Zealand needs to develop um, usage surveillance to align with the resistance surveillance that, you know, we are already doing that aspect. We just don't know who's using the antibiotics in what groups, what age groups, ethnicities, etc., etc. That's where we're, I would argue we're really lacking. Sorry for Fiji in terms of surveillance. Uh, that's something that we are trying very hard to, to coordinate together. Uh, even we have three ho major hospitals, and then they have their own different kind of data. And then we are trying very hard <coughs> to, to collate all those information together and put it in, in one uh, uh, repository so that everybody can access to that data. Uh, but for now, they still have their own data in various places. That is just one country. Just imagine if you try to put it up in the whole of Pacific. It's quite uh, a challenging mm -hmm. job yeah, as well. Mm -hmm. Could you could you look at that through the using the farms database though? Could you look and see where it was being prescribed the most? And yeah, and so um, there is data available. It's it's just not mined in the way it should be. And also, I think what needs to be it needs to also um, understand not just what prescriptions are happening, but the reason for those prescriptions. Um, because, yes, the total usage data is available, but I think we need more nuance around that to make it more useful, to target, you know, strategies to try and reduce that consumption. Um, so, you know, there's lots happening in other jurisdictions across the globe to try and reduce, you know, targets, redu reduction targets, which can be very successful, but we don't have anything like that in New Zealand. Thank you very much for very disturbing presentations, I have to say. I've, Greg, I've decided I probably should become vegetarian, but I'm not so sure how good is that. My um, question is for Saki. Um, given the findings of your study, um, and I saw your um, recommendation about us coming up again with new drugs, given that uh, we have carbapenem resistance, I'm wondering, for the short term, is there anything that is in the pipeline or any recommendations for the countries, Samoa and Fiji, to try and at least curb or combat what we currently have that you've discovered? Yes, for our context, uh, the problem is infection control. Uh, as we can see, that those uh, outbreaks were within hospital. So it was just hospital-acquired infections. So probably focusing on infection control. If we try to to uh, uh, tighten up our infection control, that will somehow uh, control the, uh, the spread of those uh, antimicrobial pathogens. In terms of uh, drugs, 
Uh, that is the only drugs that we have. Uh, we have cholestine available. Uh, some of those patients were treated with cholestine together with meropenem as well. <coughs> but the problem that uh, it's a toxic drug uh, that uh, most of our doctors, they, they don't like to use it because of the side effects that it can give to the patients. Uh, in that, uh, for, for Fiji's context, the one that I have just showed, it showed that even the uh, cholestine and meropenem drugs, combination drugs, when they treat patients, all the mortality rate were equally distributed amongst those. So they still uh, succumbed from uh, AMR infections, even when they were treated with combination drugs of uh, cholestine and meropenem. Yeah, it's unfortunate that cholestine is actually a rubbish drug and it's also very toxic, so it's not a good combination. Thank you for your presentation. Um, my question is, uh, I attended the food safety sort of talk uh, that happened earlier in the week. How, how does your research and how do people within certain fields, like how are you communicating with one another in terms of um, changing, changing practices and stuff like that in terms of um, food that we consume, in terms of the, the meat and, yeah... I kind of got the feeling that some of them were relatively close-minded in terms of um, making changes, etc. I mean, I think that's why the Europeans now have put the pressure on us, because the European... I mean, if we exported poultry meat, we'd probably stop doing that tomorrow. I mean, that was the big frustration that we had when back in, you know, early 2000 when we were looking into this, right? So we, we surveyed over 200 farms in New Zealand. And we were basically showing that 99% of the bacteria were resistant to the antibiotics that they were using as growth promoters. We went to Parliament, we showed them all the data, we basically showed that these organisms, they weren't just resistant to one antibiotic, they were resistant to the four antibiotics that they were feeding them. Those antibiotic-resistant genes were maintained on plasmids. So even when they dropped some of the antibiotics out, it didn't matter because they kept using bacitration, which kept selecting for that resistant organism, and it spread throughout New Zealand. And the, and the problem was, all the vets did was say, well, OK, instead of... You now needed prescription to feed these antibiotics to animals. And the vet just said to me, well, look, it's like this, Greg, I just write out a prescription for 26,000 kgs of bacitracin and we move on. And so, so for me, it's really disappointing as a New Zealander that we're still doing that. If we dropped bacitracin out, I think we would be the lowest user of antimicrobials in animals in the world. So I, I think the government has to own that. They have, I mean, what they're worried about is that they stop feeding bacitracin and all the chickens die, right? But the Europeans have already shown that they can farm without these antibiotics. The chickens don't die. Animal pr food production productivity is just as high. Everything is good. So I think New Zealand is in for a real fight now because we're still doing dry cow therapy. You know, we're still using prophylactic beta-lactams in the, in the drying off season. And sooner or later, the Europeans are going to say, sorry, we're not accepting this anymore. So, so I think you're right. I, I don't know why... I mean, I mean, Juliet can comment on this. I don't think clinicians have talked to... I mean, you were part of these panels. I mean, I, I know it was all reviewed, but how much... There were some vets on those panels that were very proactive in this area, and that's when they came out and said they're going to stop doing this. But if we don't give them any new tools, I don't see how they're going to be able to stop doing this. Anyway, I'll pass over to Juliet. Yeah, and I think it's true to say that we're very siloed in our thinking. You know, we're, I'm a human doctor. I think about humans, vets, you know. But the, I think with the One Health um, kind of movement, that is changing. But it's slow. Um, but 
really we need to get with the program because AMR is you know here and now and we need to do something and quickly and I do think whether you're a fan of targets or not I think you know at least there has to be a target of some sort to reduce consumption um, so that we know what we're aiming for and that certainly has been successful in humans in other, other jurisdictions. Totally unrelated question. Um, I mean, I know this is talking about uh, using antibiotics, but what has been done to look into immunomodulators for humans in terms of treating um, disease, in terms of, I don't know, you guys will be the experts more on that sort of stuff than me, but what, what sort of um, research is being done at Otago and in this sort of area to maybe change the way that we are responding to things within our body and using the natural things within our body better to help them perform better to fight disease. So, so one of the, I mean, obviously you saw during COVID, the big thing was the, the RNA vaccine platform. The government's just given us $40 million to develop an RNA vaccine platform. And, and so we can start looking at using those vaccines now to combat group A strep infections, staphylococcus infections. I mean, if you talk to the clinicians, they'll tell you, we don't need any antibiotics for Staph aureus, we need vaccines. So I think probiotics are also, I mean, probiotics now are starting to really come up in the pecking order because people are starting to realise that probiotics actually maybe work by a different mechanism. I think BlissK12 is a very good example. If you looked at the model for BlissK12, the idea was you get colonised with Streptococcus it makes a bacteria sin, kills the bad bacteria. Well, that's, that's not the mechanism. The mechanism is you take K12 and some reason you produce massive amounts of gamma interferon, and then that protects you. So it's like a prophylaxis. So, so I think we need more research in that space because that, that's the future. Because, you know, taking an antibiotic for a viral infection, that's not going to do anything, right? So the idea of throat guard, pro, I mean, that, that will curb antibiotic usage. So you're right, there's a lot of research going into this area. And we just, we just need to get more mechanistic understanding because those sorts of molecules, they're not used, you know, those products, they're not used therapeutically. You can just go to the chemist and buy them, but ultimately, if we can do more science and get more understanding, then those could become frontline therapeutics. And there's a company in this very building that, that actually is developing some of those those molecules. Yeah, and I was just going to say that it has to be multifactorial. You know, it's not going to be one thing that comes along that's the next big thing. It's got to be all of those, and, and vaccine prevention is really key, um, definitely for group A strep, Staphoris, which is a huge burden of infection that we see within New Zealand. Um, and, uh, yeah, vaccine has to be one of the answers there, for sure. Just to also comment on bacteriophage therapy as well, which is also um, probably going to become a th therapeutic option within the next few years, I'd say, particularly for those very highly multidrug-resistant type pathogens. So um, I'm quite interested to watch that space for, for bacteriophage. Yeah. There's already been a person cured, cured with a genetically modified mycobacteriophage. kid had a very dangerous mycobacterial abscessus infection. Basically, they were going to die. They used a recombinant bacteriophage and were able to basically treat the person. So, so yeah, now that we've got the molecular tools, you know, we can make a whole lot of, you know, recombinant bacteriophage to sort of overcome some of the mechanisms that have, have limited their use in, in the past, but, yeah. I guess uh, speaking on bacteriophage, uh, we, we are trying to, to, to work on bacteriophage and trying to combat uh, those uh, syntobacterial mining resistance, but it's just a matter of getting funds.
and trying to to get things uh, rolling. Uh, yeah, at the moment. So that is, I guess, that's the way forward for for Kabarpur businesses. Uh, in Australia, I guess they they have uh, a funds banking uh, system already there. Some patients have been saved uh, by using bacterial funds. So I guess that's something that uh, we can work on. Too. And it requires funding as well. <laughs> I think at this stage we've got time for another quick question from the audience, if there's another one. I suppose um, the question I have is the work that's being done on the prescription side um, and the underlying reasons why we have so many of our GPs continuing to prescribe antibiotics for people that don't need them. <laughs> it strikes me as a reasonably um, simple exercise that would make a reasonable impact short term anyway. Um. Yeah, so antimicrobial stewardship was also a big uh, interest of mine. Uh, I, I probably spend half my time persuading GPs not to use an antibiotic when they've actually phoned up to ask which antibiotic should I use. Um, it's a behavioural science actually, so it's not simple. It's very complex. Um, and a combination of patient expectation versus, you know, I've always done it this way versus, you know, what if something bad happens? So um, we are well behind the rest of the world in this field, I would say. Uh, and that's partly explains why we have such high usage. But we really need to um, have a combined strategy to combat our high usage and really there's nothing happening in that space at the moment other than just education. And I think probably even without any sort of formal programme to reduce consumption that, you know, the tide does seem to be changing. So we are reducing, but it's very minor. Yeah. Yes, I agree with Julia uh, in, in physical context. Uh, the inappropriate use of carbapenem uh, is like on about 45% of that, and uh, that goes back to behavioural science uh, uh, and in terms of uh, antimicrobial stewardship, we have to tighten up that as well. I think the other thing is, and, and there's a couple of your posters on the last couple of slides, I mean I think as, as members of the public, we also have to take some ownership of this because, you know, when we go to the doctor, we should be saying, when they're going to give us an antibiotic, we should be saying, well, why are you giving me that antibiotic? You haven't taken a swab, you haven't done a diagnostic, you, you don't really know. I mean, you know, they probably know if you've got viral or bacterial infection, but I think we have to have a role in this. I mean, I'm, I'm bad. I go to the doctor because I'm lazy because I don't want to have to go back. But, I mean, <laughs> giving the antibiotic, I'll only use it if I get really sick, but, you know, it's, it's viral. But I think the public have to play a major role in the engine. Just like you know, the companies overseas are putting massive pressure on on suppliers, you know, McDonald's are saying we're not going to accept any chicken from your farm because you're using it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we need to start doing and the public need to start applying that pressure. And I think it's the same in this environment. It's just about education. Because, you know, there's still people that think anti, you know, antimicrobials, well, antibiotics work against viruses. So it's, it's education. I think one of the things that also plays a part is that you pay to see a doctor here, like you, you pay to see a GP, you want to come away with something, and so there's quite a big interest in, you know, a viral prescription, which actually is just an information sheet to say, hey, you'll get better, don't worry. Um, but, you know, there's that perception I've, you know, paid, so I want my antibiotic. Um, so there's a lot of work to do there.
Well, a huge, huge thank you to our panellists, to Juliet, Saki and, and Greg today. Thank you all for coming out. Um, and again, please don't hurry away. Enjoy the, the discussion if you want to carry on with it this afternoon. So thank you also.